Our scripture this afternoon is from Romans chapter 12. It's on page 10 in your bulletin or also behind me. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Uh, for those of you who have not met Amy, uh, Amy is Andy's wife, or maybe Andy is Amy's husband, um, is the way to say it. Uh, Amy has been on staff with us as our nursery coordinator for a number of years now, and um, we are as grateful to have her as we are to have Andy. Uh, so kids, uh, go ahead and grab your, uh, children's, uh, your children's bulletin. There are three things that I want you to listen for, and here they are. Uh, a retriever, I want you to listen for the word, therefore, and then thirdly, I want you to listen for an illustration about ripples on a lake. So retriever, therefore, and ripples on a lake. So with that, let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray, Lord, that you would draw near to us and that your spirit would work with your word to accomplish what you desire in us. And we pray that above all, uh, we would see Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Uh, some of you uh, have met our dog Tilly before. She's a, uh, she's a mini golden doodle. She's uh, about four years old. And um, one of the really fun and actually pretty interesting things about her has been watching the way that the specific characteristics of each breed shows up in her. And so one of the things that, I, apparently this is a poodle thing, uh, one of the things she does is to dig into her uh, food dish and scatter her food all over around the dish. I don't know, it's a poodle thing apparently. Um, but the golden retriever side is maybe a bit more obvious where she has this instinct to have something in her mouth and retrieve something. And so, so the way this works is that I'll come home in the evening, I'll walk in the door, she gets super excited about seeing me and she comes to greet me, but as she's doing that, she's looking around on the floor to find something to put into her mouth. And so uh, rather than that being like a pheasant or a duck or something like that, it's one of her toys or more often than not, it's a sock that she has grabbed from somebody else's room or even pulled out of a shoe to bring into the room. And so she comes up to me, she's wagging her tail and, and it's all she can do to just show me what she has. Uh, and, and, and she's so excited and proud about it because there's something inside of her that is telling her, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm created to do this. I, I'm supposed to be giving this object to my owner here. And so, so she, she, uh, it's not really a question of whether she's going to bring something to you. It's only a matter of what. And so one of the things that, that the Bible says about us, about people, is that we are created to worship. There's actually something that, that is hardwired into us that's instinctive to us as those made in God's image to worship. And in a way, uh, similar to Tilly, it, it, it's not a matter of whether we will worship, it's only a question as to what we will worship. And at the end of the day, it really only comes down to two possibilities. We're either going to worship the God of the Bible as we were origi originally created to, or 
we're going to worship what the Bible calls an idol. So what is an idol? Well, if you hear that term, what comes to mind is probably some kind of small statue or maybe an image, or maybe if you're familiar uh, with the parts of the Old Testament, uh, it's the golden calf that the Israelites worship while Moses is up on Mount Sinai. But the thing about idolatry in the Bible is that it's much broader than that. It's actually something that goes much deeper into our own hearts. And so that there, we do have these idols, they just look differently from that. And so here's how Tim Keller describes idols. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And here's the tricky thing about our idols. Most of the time, they are really good things. They're things like work, or family, or success, or, uh, or comfort, or marriage, or relationships, or happiness. All good created things. The problem arises, though, is that we take this good created thing and we raise it up to some ultimate level. And there are a lot of reasons that, that it's really important for us to understand this and know this, but one of the reasons is this. Your entire life is shaped by what you worship. And maybe to put it even a bit more strongly, and this is the way the Bible says it, you become and are right now becoming like what you worship. You are growing into a resemblance of what you worship. And so uh, in a couple of Psalms, Psalms one, uh, Psalm 115 and Psalm 135, the psalmist describes idols in, in very similar ways. So here's what he says. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Listen to this last line, this is verse 18. Those who make them become like them so do all who trust in them. And that's some of what Paul is saying at the beginning of Romans 12, that you're either gonna worship an idol and in his words be conformed to this world or you're gonna worship the Lord and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so that's some of what I wanna look briefly at today. And this is the way we're actually gonna begin our fall sermon series that I mentioned earlier. We're gonna look through the fall at Romans 12 through 16, and we're calling this series Embodying Gospel Community. And so uh, in the past three weeks, uh, we spent those three weeks looking at our mission statement. So if you flip over to the, uh, to the back of your bulletin, I wanna draw your attention to that. We were looking at, at each of these three E words. Trinity exists to embrace, embody, and extend the redemptive message of Jesus to the people and places of Fort Worth and beyond. And so uh, for this ministry year that'll run basically with the school year, our emphasis is on the second of those two E's, the embodying of this gospel message. And so we're gonna do that by looking at this, uh, this section in Romans where Paul is talking to this church about their life together. And he's given them specific instructions about it. So the, the way I wanna frame our time each week is to ask and answer this question. How can we embody the gospel in our life together? How can we embody the gospel in our life together? So this week, we'll see this. We embody the gospel in our life together by being transformed through worship. By being transformed through worship. So uh, three points today, the motive for our worship. Secondly, the means for our worship. 
Thirdly, the result of our worship. And yes, I worked really hard to try to come up with an M word at the end, and I could not do it, so I'm sorry. So motive, means, and result. So first, the motive of our worship. Uh, So chapter 12 marks uh, a pretty significant transition uh, in the book of Romans. So what, what Paul has done up to this point is he's been talking about uh, the, the gospel itself. He's done a deep dive into the gospel, the central message of what Jesus has come to do and what he's accomplished by his death and resurrection. But what happens here is that he moves into this new section and you see it in one word. It's the word therefore in verse one. So I had a, uh, a professor in seminary who was actually one of the, the founders of our denomination. His name was Paul Settle. And he, he died just a few years ago. And he was one of the only people, only pastors that I've ever known who was addressed by everyone as reverend. We referred to him as Reverend Settle all the time. And it was totally fitting for him, even as, as weird as my, that might be for other people. Um, but what he would always say is that anytime you would see the word therefore in scripture and specifically in Paul's letters, you need to ask this question. What's the therefore, therefore? Pretty cheesy, right? Absolutely. But everybody's gonna remember that now too, just, just like I have. So what is Paul saying here? Why is there uh, this, this transitional statement? Why the therefore? He's saying this. Through Christ's death and resurrection, you have been forgiven for the penalty of your sin. And in Christ, you have now been declared righteous. He has said that you have been adopted by grace into God's family such that God is now your father and you have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters. He said that that the power of sin has been broken in your life through the resurrection of Jesus so that sin is no longer your master. You are no longer under its dominion. And then he said in chapter eight that there will come a day when Jesus returns and sets this world completely right again and makes this world new, when you yourselves will then receive resurrected bodies and inhabit this world completely free from the presence of sin. That is what he has done for you by his grace. So the the shorthand for that in verse one is the mercies of God. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says the mercies of God, he's saying all of this that Jesus has accomplished, that's what Jesus has done for you. And so he's saying now, therefore, in light of all that Jesus has done for you by his grace, live in light of that reality. Now, because of that, present your bodies as a living, living sacrifice. And this, uh, this pattern is all over Paul's letters. So theologians often call this the difference between the indicative and the imperative. And so if you're maybe a little rusty on your high school English, um, an indicative statement is a statement of fact. It's a declarative statement. An imperative statement is a command. And what you see in the Bible is that the indicative statements always come before or precede the imperative statements. In other words, what Jesus has done for you always comes before and precedes anything that God calls you to do. And we've gotta keep that order straight. So he's saying here, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is this rich, beautiful gospel message. Now, church, live in light of that new reality. So here's the question for us uh, that that we need to ask. Um, why, Why is that so important for us? Maybe particularly when we start thinking about our motives in worship. 
Well, here's why. I think if we lose sight of the mercies of God that we've been shown, then it becomes so tempting to think that the only time that you can really come before the Lord and maybe even come to worship and be with his people are the times when you've got your life pulled together. Are the times when maybe you are meeting some sort of standard of holiness that, that allows you to enter into this place. And if you're not there, then you can't show up. And now you, you might hear that, and, and my guess is that, that none of you have ever said that sort of thing out loud. And it may be that you have never even consciously had that thought that that's the way that you might be approaching the Lord. But the problem with that, though, is that it can be incredibly subtle. And so let me just give one example of this. I want you to think back to a time where you really blew it. And this could be that thing that happened years ago. It could be that thing that happened earlier this week. It literally could be the thing that happened this morning. Maybe it was the time where you completely lost it with your kids in the grocery store and you publicly shamed them in ways that you regret deeply. And it really does eat at you thinking about what this did to your child to have this experience in public like that. Maybe it's the, the, the time where you had had way too much to drink at your office party. You made a fool of yourself and you radically changed all of the relationships in your office. And it feels like you can never come back from it. Or maybe it's the time where, where you have said something out of this place of hurt and anger that is so incredibly cruel to your friend that you know as the words are coming out of your mouth, you wanna put them back in. And it's done this irreparable harm in your friendship. So I want you to think about whatever that is for you, okay? Now, was your first response in that moment, what I need right now more than anything else is to go to worship to be with God and his people. That's what I need to do right now. Or was it more along the lines of, there is no way that I could even show my face in worship this morning? Because did you see what I did? Do you know what last night looked like for me? And so here's the thing about that. The way that you answer that question or respond to that question is gonna say, is gonna say what you really believe about the mercy of God. Because if you believe that God's grace really is greater than your sin, then this is the place that you wanna be. If you really believe that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, then this is the person, then the Lord is the one from whom you need to hear. But if that's not what you believe, then you're gonna avoid him. And the sad thing about this is that we avoid him at the time when we need to hear his words of grace the most. So very practically, this is part of why Jesus and his gospel are so central to our life as a church and even specifically so central to our worship service. And it's because you and I have to be reminded over and over again of the saving work of Jesus for us. You need to hear those words of assurance every single week. And you need to know that they, they apply not just to your sin in general or not just to all those things that are in your past, but to those very specific sins that you are dealing with right now. And you need to be reminded that you are welcome at this table, at the Father's table, that he wants to feast with you, that he wants you to come to him, he wants you to be with him, 
and he wants to commune with you. That's why we do what we do here. That is our motive in worship. This is the mercy of God that Paul's talking about. So as we embody the gospel together, that mercy is going to be central to our life as a church. And so that, that motive then is what leads into, secondly, the means of our worship, the means of our worship. So what shape does our worship take? How does Paul describe it here? If you look back to verse one, you'll see this. He says, I, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So uh, there is a whole lot going on uh, in these verses. We're not gonna be able to, to touch on all of it, but here's what I do wanna highlight. What Paul does here is he describes our lives uh, and actually our worship in particular in terms of Old Testament sacrificial language. So this is the language of offering a sacrifice in the temple that was holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. Here's the thing we gotta remember though. There are actually a number of different sacrifices in the Old Testament. And not all of them were, were atoning sacrifices for sins. There were different offerings that were, uh, that were at work. And so one author points out that the sacrifice Paul is talking about here was probably the burnt offering. And, and, and the burnt offering was this offering of an animal that was without blemish. It was the, the best of your, of your herd. But it was offered as this way to, to express your complete commitment to and dependence upon the Lord. And so Tim Keller says that it was a way to say, everything I have is yours with no reservations. And so you, you can see how this translates and what Paul's talking about here in terms of our own lives. That, that we are to, to offer our entire lives, the whole of who we are and what we have to him. And that's actually what he's, part of what he's getting at when he mentions our bodies. It's, it's a way for him to talk about our entire selves, the whole of our lives. And so this is the outflow of the, the, the mercies of God at work in us. So that we then respond to his grace by offering ourselves to him. Here's what's interesting about this though. If you notice uh, in verse one, bodies is plural. So what Paul has in mind is that each of us as individuals would, would offer our bodies to the Lord, but he then says that this, there's this one sacrifice that we offer. The sacrifice is singular. So present your bodies as one living sacrifice. In other words, this is something that we do together, that we offer ourselves together as a community. And so really what Paul has in mind here is, uh, is something much bigger than just our corporate worship and what it is that we're doing right here on a Sunday. He's talking here about every part of our lives being an opportunity for worshiping the Lord. And so, uh, so the question then is, is, how does this sort of whole life scattered kind of worship that happens throughout the week, how does that relate to and connect to what it is that we're doing right here? This gathered corporate worship. Well, it, it connects in this way. Our gathered worship, what we're doing right now in our time together on Sunday afternoons, is the central feature of our life as a church. This is what we do together as this gathered worship that then radiates out into all parts of our lives. So kids, let me try to illustrate it this way. I want you to think about what happens when you drop a huge rock in a lake. So you drop this huge rock in the lake and what happens that you see are all these ripples that come out from that, that one splash all the way out to the shoreline to where those ripples end up touching every part 
of the lake. What Paul's saying is that that's how worship works in our lives. That our worship together ends up touching every part of our lives as Jesus ministers to us by his spirit here. That actually begins to shape the way that we do everything else. It shapes the way you go about your classes, the way you go about your work. It shapes the way you go about uh, parenting your children or relating to your neighbors next door or relating to other family members. It, 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 uh, it impacts the way that you steward and think about your sexuality and your relationships with other people. And what happens over time is that you start looking to these things in your life, these good things that God has given to us, not as these idols that are gonna satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, but instead as these areas of your life where you can actually worship and enjoy the God who has given it to you. That's what begins to happen over time. All of that flows from our gathered worship together. So I wanna uh, draw your attention to the quote from Mike Cosper, it's in the front of your bulletin. It's a long quote, uh, but it's worthwhile. This is, this is what uh, he's saying. Rehearsed regularly, the gospel becomes a part of our way of thinking, seeing, feeling, loving, and being in the world. It's a weekly heartbeat gathering us in and scattering us back out to our homes and workplaces, to children's soccer games and board meetings, to chemotherapy sessions and evenings around the dinner table. From there, we return to the gathered church, once again rehearsing the story, remembering who God has made us, singing and celebrating that identity. Liturgy that immerses the people of God in the rhythms of grace doesn't merely train them for gospel-centered worship. It trains them for gospel-centered lives. That's what we're talking about. This is how that works. And over time, what begins to occur by God's grace is that we begin to offer the whole of our lives to this God who has loved us and has shown us this immense mercy in and through his son. So that's the, the, the means of our worship. Thirdly, and finally, the result of our worship. So uh, Paul gives another couple of commands in verse two. He says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so one quick word here, when he mentions the world, what he's talking about here is that there is a way of the world that, it, that is actually in opposition to God, that rejects him that opposes him. And this goes all the way back to Genesis three and the fall. And so the, the Bible um, actually mentions uh, three general enemies of the Christian. So this is something kids, this is a good thing for you to, to remember as well. The three enemies of the Christian are the world, this world in opposition to God, the flesh, which is a way not to talk about like your skin, right? That's not the problem, but it's the remaining sin that still lives in your heart. So it's the world, the flesh, and then finally the devil. Satan himself, the great deceiver who opposes all of God's children. And so Paul is saying that there's a way of life in the world that rejects God, that is in rebellion against him. And here's the thing about it, that is actively also, it's also actively trying to conform you to this life, to turn your heart away from God and turn your heart towards other things, towards a life at the end of the day that puts yourself at the center rather than God. And so uh, St. Augustine had a, a great quote and definition of sin. The way he describes sin is man turned in on himself. Man turned in on himself. And that's what the world is trying to do to you, to turn you in 
on yourself. And here's the really insidious thing about this. All you have to do to be conformed to this world is nothing. Nothing at all. To not actively oppose it in any way is to allow this gravitational pull that the world has on you that Satan will take and exploit by appealing to the remaining sin that resides in your heart. And so Paul's words to us here are to not be conformed to it, to actively oppose that kind of gravitational pull that's gonna happen otherwise. And so the question then is how do we do that? Well, he, he says it is instead by being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And, and there are a lot of different ways we can experience this kind of transformation. It can come from your own time of, of reading the word, uh, reading the Bible or prayer. It can come through Bible studies. It can come through serving others. It can come through community groups. But the primary place, the central place that that happens is right here in worship. Now, why would I say that? Well, I say that because this is the place where God promises to meet with his people in a special way, where he promises that when we gather around his word and his table together, he is present by his spirit in a way that is unique to the way that he is present with us other times. It's this place where he is active, where he is sanctifying you, where he's reminding you of his love for you, where he's renewing his image in you, where, he, where, where Jesus, as Ray Ortland says, is setting us free from the idolatries that gnaw at us. That's some of what's happening here. And the, the way that that begins to occur for us is when Jesus becomes more beautiful and believable to us. Where Jesus actually becomes more desirable than all of our idols. What, what occurs is that, that you, you begin to taste and to see and, and to experience his love and compassion for you that is so real. You begin to, to, to see the glory that, that he has as our true king. And you begin to see that he as your king is absolutely committed to doing you good. And that that will never ever change. And as that happens, as you begin to see him for who he really is, your heart is more and more drawn towards him. You actually have a, a desire for him, more so than all of these other idols that are trying to pull your heart in that direction. All of these idols that never deliver on what they promise. So let me uh, uh, conclude this with the same uh, quote that I read at the beginning of the service. This is what Jamie Smith says about these new hungers that we have. The church is that household where the spirit feeds us what we need and where by his grace, we become a people who desire him above all else. Christian worship is the feast where we acquire new hungers for God and for what God desires and are then sent into his creation to act accordingly. This is what Jesus offers you. A whole new set of hungers that are fixed upon him. A whole new set of hungers that are satisfied in him in ways that nothing else will. So this is what is on offer to you. This is what's on offer to us as a church. The question is, will you receive it? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the great gift of your son. We thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in him and for the life that we now have in him. And Father, we pray that as our experience of this grace deepens in our own hearts and lives, we would become a people who worship you with the whole of who we are. And we pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.